Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us to your house of worship today. Lord, we know that Jesus is coming soon. And now more than ever, we need to be setting our affections in the right places, on things above. And Lord, I just pray that this morning we would set our minds on heavenly things, that our minds would be directed to the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, that we would ponder what Jesus is doing for us even now in the sanctuary above, and that this message would be a reminder and perhaps even a wake-up call of how important it is to be right with you. So I pray that you would give me the words to speak, and may you give each one of us ears to listen, to hear what the Spirit has to say to us today. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I trust and pray by the grace of God that you came this morning to have an experience with Jesus. And not just a surface experience. You know, it's a little bit late, or far more than a little bit late, to just come and play church. It's more than a little late in Earth's history just to go through the motions and check off that church service attendance just to get it done. We are Seventh-day Adventists. We have a message to give to the world. We're not just here to be playing church anymore. We've never been here to play church. God has raised up a people to proclaim a message to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. Amen? And I'm going to start by reading a statement from Review and Herald, August 19, 1890. When the third angel's message is preached as it should be, power attends its proclamation and it becomes an abiding influence. If the third angel's message hasn't become an abiding influence, that simply means that we're not preaching it the way it's supposed to be preached. But it's supposed to be preached in such a way that power will attend its proclamation. Continuing on. It must be attended with divine power or it will accomplish nothing. Now, Ellen White does something very interesting here. The next thing she does, she connects the proclamation of the third angel's message to the parable of the bridegroom and the ten virgins. And here she says, I am often referred to the parable of the ten virgins, five of whom were wise and five were foolish. This parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter, for it has a special application to this time, and like the third angel's message, has been fulfilled and will continue to be present truth till the close of time. Review and Herald, August 19, 1890. Ellen White, the servant of the Lord, God's prophet for the last days, says, I am often referred to the parable of the bridegroom. If she was often referred to this parable, don't you think that we should hear about it often? Because this parable has special application for this time. 
And she says that it will continue to be present truth like the third angel's message till the close of time. And I might add, now is the time to be hearing present truth in our churches. You know, early writing 63, Ellen White says there's many truths contained in the word of God, but it's present truth that the flock needs now, and she identifies the sanctuary in, command, in connection with the commandments of God and the 2300 days and the faith of Jesus. That is present truth. You know, we can get off into all these other things, safe sermons, felt-need sermons, feel-good sermons, all these types of sermons, but is that really helping us to be prepared for the coming of Jesus? Furthermore, is it preparing us as God's people to give a proclamation to prepare people to meet the bridegroom? This message is present truth for this time. Now, we are going to get into Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to read the verses, but let me just give you a hypothetical scenario. You're a Seventh-day Adventist. You have heard your entire life that Jesus is coming soon. And on Tuesday morning, which, by the way, Tuesday is October 22. And it just so happens that in the year 1844, October 22 fell on a Tuesday. So just, that's a side point of trivia. But here's the thing. Let's just say Tuesday morning, you wake up and a nuclear bomb has gone off in New York City. And by the end of the day, Prayer vigils throughout America have been formed, and by the next day, people are saying, we need to get back to God, and by the following Sunday, the leaders of the nation and the leaders of the churches come together and say, we've been playing games for far too long. It's time to get back to being a Christian nation. Let's make a Sunday law. And we as Seventh-day Adventists, I'm telling you this, as sure as I'm standing here, every one of us in this room would be shocked out of our minds. And you know you would be. You're not planning on Tuesday for a nuclear bomb to go off and to have a Sunday law passed the following week. No, you're not. It's business as usual. We're sound asleep, floating along. Oh yeah, one of these days Jesus is going to come, but not this week, not next week, and probably not even next year. Oh yeah, we just had a little government shutdown, but praise the Lord, things are back on track. They're funding the government again, and we don't really need to worry about anything too much. Let's just keep on working, making money, doing business as usual, and maybe one of these days this Jesus we've been preaching about will come again. That's the condition of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And that's why the parable of the bridegroom in Matthew 25 has special application for this time. Now, when Ellen White says this parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter, I'm just going to make a side point by saying this parable was fulfilled to the very letter through the history of the Millerite movement. Now, I'm not going to take the time to talk about how it was fulfilled through them. You can read the history about that. But the midnight cry phase was when they set the date for October 22. That's when the, the parable was fulfilled to the very letter through the Millerite movement. But it's also going to be fulfilled to the very letter through the Seventh-day Adventist church, the movement God has raised up for the last days. And we're going to see how that happens in 
our scripture reading of Matthew chapter 25. Before I get into those verses of scripture, though, I have a couple of statements to read to you as well from the pen of inspiration. The first one is Prophets and Kings, page 626. Christians should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. Are you preparing? Or are you just floating along, oh, one of these days maybe it will happen? Or are you living your life in such a way as saying, the rest of the world is going to be overtaken as if it's an overwhelming surprise, but I'm not a child of darkness, it's not going to overtake me. This preparation they should make by diligently studying the Word of God and striving to conform their lives to its precepts. You know, too many times today now, Seventh-day Adventists are saying, oh, the Word of God and the doctrines we hold, they're so old-fashioned. Let's just celebrate the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Jesus is all. Don't worry about doctrine. And by the way, I'm not making that up. There's a movement out there called the One Project that's leading such a charge. Continuing, the tremendous issues of eternity demand of us something besides an imaginary religion, a religion of words and forms where truth is kept in the outer court. God calls for a revival and reformation. She says the tremendous issues of eternity demand of us something besides an imaginary religion. Do you have an imaginary religion where you believe in an imaginary Jesus that only helps you in an emergency? Listen, we as Seventh-day Adventists, we should understand the tremendous issues of eternity. If we are connected to Jesus, our high priest and our savior in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, we will understand that we are facing tremendous issues of eternity. And yet here we are, a Laodicean lukewarm church, so many of us floating along as if we have an imaginary religion where our religion consists of five-minute morning and evening worships and maybe a couple of hours on Sabbath coming to church. We are facing something far greater than just child's play here. We need to be beyond an imaginary religion. Testimonies, volume 8, page 28, says something very similar. Transgression has almost reached its, reached its limit. Confusion fills the world, and a great terror is soon to come upon human beings. The end is very near. We who know the truth should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. Again, overwhelming surprise, overwhelming surprise, and yet this, the church is sleeping. Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Here Jesus is speaking of his kingdom, of his church. He likens it to ten virgins, and virgins represent pure women. A woman represents the church, obviously, and this is a pure church who take their lamps and they go forth to meet the bridegroom. And we know from Psalms 119.105 that the lamp represents the word of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So here is a 
pure church that is a Bible-believing church that has the truths of Scripture and it goes forth to meet the bridegroom, meaning it is expecting Jesus to come back. This is God's last day church, a pure church, a Bible-believing church who expects Jesus to come back in the clouds. Now let me say something straight to you. All ten women are described as virgins. All ten women have the lamps, meaning they have the truths of the Word of God. So let me tell you something. If you're a professed Seventh-day Adventist and you don't believe what the Bible says about creation, you're not one of the virgins. If you're a professed Seventh-day Adventist and you don't believe what the Bible says about Daniel 8.14, you're not a virgin. This is speaking of people who believe in the truths of the word of God for the last days that are to prepare a people for the coming of Jesus. This represents God's pure church because sometimes we'll say, oh, well, yeah, they're all sleeping, but I'm a wise virgin because I have the truths of scripture. The foolish virgins must be those people who believe in evolution. That's not what the parable means. The parable is describing a pure church who has the lamp of the word of God and based on the truths of scripture, they understand, they see the three angels' messages that we are living in the hour of his judgment, that we are to proclaim with a loud voice the everlasting gospel, that we are to proclaim that Babylon has fallen, that there is a crisis coming of facing the beast and his image and the mark and the number of his name. And so we take our lamps and we proclaim the messages and we're going forth to meet the bridegroom and yet in the midst of having the truths of the word of God, verse 2, Two says five of them were wise and five were foolish. How could it be that a pure Bible-believing end-time church who believes in the imminent return of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, how could it be that some of the pure women in God's last day church are foolish? We're talking about people that are theologically pure. They have the correct doctrine. They have the correct theological understanding intellectually. They understand what the Bible says about creation and the sanctuary and the humanity of Christ and the list goes on and on. Diet, health reform, dress reform, all of these things. Yet five are wise and five are foolish. Verse 3. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Here's the difference. The foolish have no oil, the wise have the oil. Now, we know this. We understand, yes, from Zechariah chapter 4, you have the lampstands and you have two two, like pipes. There's two pipes connected to olive trees and you have oil flowing from the olive trees into these lamps. And Zechariah says, what does this mean? And he's told, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit 
saith the Lord of hosts. This represent, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And so here we have a contrast. You have ten theologically pure women in God's last day church, and five of them have the Holy Spirit and five of them do not. Those who have the Holy Spirit are wise. Those who don't, do not have the Holy Spirit are foolish. Yet, interestingly, because there has been a delay in the coming of Jesus, the entire pure church has fallen asleep. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about the oil and what that represents and how it manifests itself practically in our lives. Yet here we are, God's last day in time church, and we've been preaching since 1844, which is 169 years now, that Jesus is coming soon. And now people are starting to yawn a little bit and say, oh, we've been hearing this for a long time. My parents believe this. My grandparents believe this. My great-grandparents believe this. I'm a fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist, so I'm the fifth generation in my family to proclaim that Jesus is coming soon. How many more generations is it going to take? I have two daughters now. They're the, going to be the sixth generation of Adventists. How many more generations are we going to need to proclaim that Jesus is coming soon? And so because of this, God's last day church has fallen asleep, and yet they're still described as a pure church. Now, it's not commended that we have fallen asleep, but that's a reality of what has happened. And if you don't believe that the church has fallen asleep... Go back to that scenario I've painted for you that when Ellen White says the final movements are going to be rapid ones, God's people are going to be shocked out of their minds, even if you're ready for it when it really happens. Because we're like, oh yeah, Jesus is coming soon, and then when the final events hit, it's going to be, I can't believe this is really happening. It's here, but I can't believe it. And you look at Seventh-day Adventism in general. Having a form of godliness. Showing up to church. And we might even sound good in Sabbath school class. And our speakers, myself included, we might sound good from the pulpit. But what are our lives like when nobody's looking? whether you're up front or in the pew and you're sounding good when you make your comments or you're leading out or you're singing the special music or you're playing the piano or you're teaching the children's Sabbath school, whatever it may be, oh yes, we look good when we come to Sabbath school and we're here to praise the Lord for what he's done in our lives. But the question is, when nobody's looking, do we really know Jesus? Are we really connected to him when that still small voice speaks to our conscience and says, this is the way, walk ye in it? Are we so connected to him that like as we talked about Abraham this morning, when God speaks to us and the rest of the world says, what, you're crazy, we follow him. Because that's going to be the difference between those who are wise and those who are foolish. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through our conscience, through a still small voice. Five of the women are wise, five are foolish, and initially you cannot tell the difference. Only when the cry is made what, did it become apparent who had oil and who did not. 
Now, I'm going to read, continuing from what Ellen White says about this parable. Review and Herald, August 19, 1890. In the parable, the ten virgins had lamps, but only five of them had the saving oil with which to keep their lamps burning. This represents the condition of the church. The wise and the foolish have their Bibles and are provided with all the means of grace, but many do not appreciate the fact that they must have the heavenly unction. They do not heed the invitation, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Then she goes on to say, Jesus desires to efface the image of the earthly from the minds of his followers and to impress upon them the image of the heavenly that they may become one with himself. Now, continuing, she makes some other interesting statements. The, further down in the paragraph, or for a few paragraphs later, she says, In the parable of the virgins, five are represented as wise and five as foolish. The name foolish virgins represents the character of those who have not the genuine heart work wrought by the Spirit of God. The coming of Christ does not change the foolish virgins into wise ones. When Christ comes, the balances of heaven will weigh the character and decide whether it is pure, sanctified, and holy, or whether it is unclean and unfit for the kingdom of heaven. Those who have despised the divine grace that is at their command that would have qualified them to be the inhabitants of heaven will be the foolish virgins. They had all the light, all the knowledge, but they failed to obtain the oil of grace. They did not receive the truth in its sanctifying power. In other words, having a knowledge of truth but not being converted. You know, Ellen White says in Great Controversy 608, as the storm approaches a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message but have not been sanctified by obedience to the truth will abandon the ranks and will join the ranks of the opposition. By choosing the easier, easy popular side, they will come to view matters in nearly the same light as the world. Here's the issue. The difference between the wise and the foolish virgins, the oil of the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's John 3, 3. And then in John 3, 5, he says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We're talking about conversion here. And you realize that we as Seventh-day Adventists have learned to fake conversion pretty well. We can come to church and look converted, but in our heart of hearts, we still have the old man of sin reigning in our lives. We have that Romans 7 experience where it says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I'm a slave to sin, so that the good I would, I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, I end up doing anyway. Oh, wretched man that I am. We have this knowledge of the truth, but we don't find the power to obey because we're not willing to fall upon the rock Christ Jesus and to surrender our lives to him fully and completely in every aspect of our lives. Now, let me make it practical for you here. It is important that all ten virgins have the lamps, because the lamps contain the truths of the Word of God, which point us to Jesus. And all the doctrines contained in Scripture help us to understand Jesus better. But if all we get from the Bible are the truths of Scripture without the oil in our lamps that regenerate our hearts and minds and bring in conversion, we end up becoming a foolish virgin. And let's make it practical. 
you understand the 2300 days that beginning in 1844, the sanctuary would be cleansed. Yet you're still smoking cigarettes and defiling the temple of God. Now, by God's grace, I'm imagining that everybody's beyond that type of a temptation. But yet, it's, more, it's closer than that, and we know it, right? So we believe in Daniel 8, 14, yes, 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Yet every time my spouse crosses me, rather than responding with the love of Jesus, I respond with the spirit of the devil. Every time at work when that person who gets under my skin does just that little thing to make me upset, I respond as if I'm not a Christian. And people are like, what, you're a Seventh-day Adventist and yet you have that kind of an attitude? Listen, having the truths of Scripture are important, but have those truths, which Jesus is the truth, has that knowledge of Jesus come into your heart so that you've become like him in character? Because it's all nice and great and wonderful and fine to know all the doctrines of Scripture, yet if you're still acting like the old man that you were, the old woman like you were before you gave your life to Jesus, then at the end of the day, what difference does it make? you'll be like one of the foolish virgins who will be without the oil of the Holy Spirit. And listen, the reason why when they say, oh no, I'm, I don't have the oil, let me have some of yours, you can't take someone's conversion experience from them. I can't get the conversion experience from my wife for myself. She can't get it from me. I can't get it from Brother Olatunja. He can't get it from me, and so on and so forth. We each have to have our own experience. We each have to have our own oil. We each must have the experience of saying, I am crucified with Christ. I'm not crucified for Brother Olatunja. He's not crucified for me. Jesus was crucified for me, and I respond to that by saying, I will be crucified with him. I make a choice to surrender my life to him. So what we're talking about here, we are talking, this parable, this message of this parable is designed to be given to Seventh-day Adventists who know the truth. And it's good to know the truth because knowing the truth puts us in the avenue of the way of salvation so that the Holy Spirit can speak to us and can prompt or prick our consciences so that we're like, oh yes, Jesus is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. He died on the cross for me. I will respond in a loving way. I will respond in a kind way. I will be like Jesus. I'm not going to let the old man of sin rise up and show what Norman is really like when he's unconverted. I'm going to let Jesus show what he is like through me. Amen. That's the difference between the wise and the foolish virgins. Now, let's keep going. Actually, very interesting. Ellen White says, Christ's Object Lessons, page 411. The class represented by the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They have a regard for the truth. They have advocated the truth. They are attracted to those who believe the truth, but they have not yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit's working. They have not fallen upon the rock Christ Jesus and permitted their old nature to be broken up. 
Again, this is interesting. Sometimes we think, oh yeah, the foolish virgins, they're just the hypocrites and they're out there in the bars and they're believing in evolution and they're pushing really hard for women's ordination when the Bible makes it clear that that's not okay. Yeah, that's them, whatever. No, we're talking about people who understand the truths of Scripture. But the question is, yes, you can give a Bible study on the 2300 days. Yes, you can give a Bible study on the judgment and on the second coming and on the Sabbath and on the state of the dead. And all of those things are important to help prepare us to not be deceived in the last days. But the question is, have you fallen upon the rock, Christ Jesus, and yielded up your life to his will? When you hear that still small voice speaking to your heart, saying, this is the way, walk ye in it, do you have the automatic response ingrained within your mind to say, yes, Lord, or do you say, yeah, but I don't want to right now. Maybe next time, but not this time. Listen, Jesus isn't looking for yeah, but Christians. Jesus is looking for, yes, Lord, Christians. Now, something woke up God's sleeping church. Because the church is sleeping. We are sleeping today. We're hearing this message today and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're sleeping. And we're going to go right back to business as usual. We may be converted. We may have the oil of the Holy Spirit so that we're reflecting Jesus in our lives, but we're still sleeping because all the virgins were sleeping. But listen, something woke the church up, didn't it? Let's read verse 6. Matthew chapter 25, verse 6. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Now, in parallel with the Millerite history, there was a Millerite preacher by the name of Samuel S. Snow who came along and he, through his understanding, through his study of the scripture, came to realize that there were the spring festivals and Jesus died as the Passover lamb on the very day. There were the fall festivals and the day of atonement would be on the very day of October 22, 1844, at the end of the 2300 days. And through his proclamation at a Millerite camp meeting, everybody left that camp meeting, and the words on their lips were, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And it was known as the Seventh Month Movement. Ellen White says in Great Controversy 401, of all the great religious movements since the days of the apostles, none have been more free from human imperfection and of the wiles of the devil than was that of the autumn of 1844. We haven't yet gotten back to that point. The Lord used a messenger with a message to wake his people up. And I would submit to you today that God is looking for messengers today with a message for this time to wake his sleeping church up. Because you see, God isn't going to use external influences nuclear bombs, second 9-11s, and what have you, to be the main vehicle to wake his church up. God is looking for modern-day Elijahs who are going to come to God's last-day church, who are going to proclaim the message, prepare ye the way of the Lord. 
God is going to bring a straight message that is going to bring a shaking to his church that is going to wake Adventism up. When you read Early Writings, page 270, Ellen White says, I was asked the meaning of the shaking, and she was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the true counsel of the, to the Laodicean church, by the true witness to the Laodicean church. A message that comes to God's last day church and says, wake up, Seventh-day Adventist, what are you doing? Why are you playing games with God? You know better than to be doing that. You can put on this front and say, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But at the end of the day, you above all people should know, we above all people should know that Jesus is in the most holy place of that sanctuary in heaven trying to put an end to sin in our lives. And yet Seventh-day Adventists have become almost complacent. And we're like, oh, that was a nice sermon today. It was another good, safe sermon. I'm glad Jesus loves me. And you know, I'm glad Jesus loves us. But you know, the way Jesus is going to show his love to his last day church, he is going to send messengers with a message that will wake his sleeping church up. And I believe one day soon, we are going to be hearing the message, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And people are going to start waking up and saying, you know what? It's been a long time since I've heard Seventh-day Adventists preaching such a straight message pointing us to Jesus. And it's time for me to surrender my life fully and completely to him so that I have the oil in the vessels in my lamp. That I have the converting grace of Jesus in my life. I need to be prepared for the crisis that is coming. Not because I'm scared that Jesus is coming, but because I love him and want to meet him. Listen, how, how much longer do you want to wait for Jesus to come? Now, you can say with your lips, oh, I want him to come soon. And it will sound good to, the, to all of us right now. But how are you living your life? Are you living your life in such a way that demonstrates you want him to come soon? Am I? Listen, if Jesus truly is your best and dearest friend, you'll be willing to go through whatever time of trouble is coming to get to see him, right? If you don't really love Jesus, then you're going to be talking more about, oh, the time of trouble, I just, lay me to rest, Lord, before that time comes. But listen, if you have a loved one, a special one, I'm married now, and I had a long-distance relationship with, with her before we um, became engaged, and, and then eventually she moved to the same town, and we got engaged and became married. We were long-distance for a year and a half, and I love her so much that I was willing to go through whatever trouble, whatever crisis, whatever it took to be with her. Amen. Do you feel that way about Jesus? Or do you just want to have a permanent long-distance relationship with him? Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Oh, no, not yet. Why don't you stay back in heaven for another few years because I'm having a good time. I have a nice job. I have a nice house. I have a nice family. I have a good group of friends in college, what have it, you name it. And by the way, I hope my favorite sports team wins a World Series before Jesus comes or you name it, what have it. What are you doing? 
seriously? And you want, and you, you say you're a Seventh-day Adventist, and yet the things of this world are more exciting to you, and you think about them more, and you spend more time with those things than you think about Jesus? Listen, if we have a message, behold, the bridegroom cometh, we have to have an experience with Jesus where we want him to come. We want Jesus to come back. We are looking for his appearing. We are looking at it as the blessed hope, as our pioneers described it. It's not the scary hope. So many of us grew up in the church now, it's like, oh, the time of trouble, and it's going to be such as never was since there was a nation, and yes, it is. And that's what we focus on, and we don't look at the end line to say, we're going to be with Jesus. But here's the thing. We know Jesus is pure and holy. And we can talk about the, the mushy grace-like Jesus that will cover you and your sins until he comes. And we know that's not true. At the end of the day, you know it's not true. And the reason why we get scared of the thought of Jesus coming back is because we're not ready to meet him. If you love Jesus, if you've fallen on the rock Christ Jesus and have been broken, and Jesus is your friend, you want your friend to come back. But if Jesus is not your friend, deep down in your heart of hearts, you're going to be like, oh, I'm so thankful that the winds of strife got held a little bit longer. Whew. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Now listen. Christ Object Lessons, page 412. It is in a crisis that character is revealed. When the earnest voice proclaimed at midnight, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him, and the sleeping virgins were roused from their slumbers, it was seen who had made preparation for the event. Both parties were taken unawares, but one was prepared for the emergency, and the other was found without preparation. Now listen, so now... A sudden and unlooked-for calamity, something that brings the soul face-to-face -face with death, will show whether there is any real faith in the promises of God. There is coming to God's church in the last days, after God sends his messengers to wake the church up with a straight message that will bring a shaking, there is going to then be a sudden, unlooked-for calamity that is going to bring the soul face-to-face -face with death. And then we will see who's made preparation for the event. And the question is, are you making preparation? What is your character like when you hit the little mini-crises in your life now? Like, you hear the sermon at church and it's powerful, and then you get the flat tire on the way home and you can't get a hold of anyone, and then you, do you start kicking the tire and smashing the car because you lose your temper? Come on, if we can't even handle stuff like that, how are we going to face the real crisis? Or the bigger crisis, you lose your job, and then do you start acting like the children of Israel? God just led me through this life to let me die in the wilderness. And I'm not making light of losing a job, don't get me wrong, but it's a time that God is going to test your faith so that you can get closer to him. Or even closer to home. If you go through a, a divorce or a separation or a tragic sudden loss of a loved one, do you have faith in the promises of God to get you through those times? 
Those are experiences that will prepare us for the coming of Jesus. Because this sudden, unlooked-for calamity is coming that will bring every soul face to face with death, and it will show whether there is any real faith in the promises of God. Now is the time to be developing faith in God's promises. Now is the time for us to learn to trust in God. But if we're not willing to surrender our lives fully and completely to him, we're showing that we don't really trust him. We're still wanting to hang on to certain areas of our lives because we trust ourselves and our judgment and our wisdom more than we trust the wisdom of the Almighty. And if we can't even trust God on the little things, there's no way when the final test comes that we're going to trust God when we're facing death. And so the message for this morning, I hope it's been clear to you. We are the ten virgins. We are all sleeping. And I pray by the grace of God that there are some in this room today who will be messengers for the Lord to give a message. That message, the midnight cry message, which is the loud cry message of Revelation 18, which will be empowered by the latter rain of the Holy Spirit, where an angel will come down from heaven having great power. The earth will be lightened with its glory. The character of God will be illuminated throughout the world. And as Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons, talking about the parable of the bridegroom, the last message of mercy to be given to the world will be the message of the character of his love. I pray that we have messengers today who will be part of that message to wake people up. I also pray that each one of us will come face to face with God today and say, you know, I need the oil of the Holy Spirit in my life. I've been living an imaginary religion where I show up to church And I know the verses, and I know the applications, but I'm not applying them personally. And I need to fall upon the rock, Christ Jesus, and be broken. I need to be crucified with Christ. As I see Jesus hanging on the cross for me with his matchless love, it provokes in my heart a response of love, where love awakens love, and we say, if Jesus gives up everything for me, what more can I give up for him? What have I not yet given up? That's what Jesus is looking for. You know, it's a sad state of reality that too many, too many Seventh-day Adventists, when the final crisis comes, will be among the foolish virgins and will receive the mark of the beast. And they will come up to the door and they'll say, Lord, Lord, let us enter in. And he'll say, depart from me, I know you not. You know, 1 John 4, verse 8 says, He who loveth not knoweth not God. When Jesus says to the professed followers of Christ, I know you not, it will be to people who never really loved him. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to see him come back? Are you willing to go through whatever crisis and trouble lies ahead to get to see him? Because that's the group of people that Jesus is going to come back for. Those who are looking for his appearing. And by the grace of God, 
we will be Seventh-day Adventists who are looking for the blessed hope, not the scary hope. We will be Seventh-day Adventists who have the oil in our lamps. We will be wise, and by His grace, we will prepare people for the coming of the Lord so that when Jesus comes, we will say, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us. If you want to be among that group of people, I would invite you to stand as I make an appeal prayer at this time. If you want to be among that number who will be wise and who will surrender everything on the altar to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given a parable through Jesus to us that I identifies our true condition in the last days of earth's history. We're sorry that we've fallen asleep, and in so many cases, many of us here are foolish virgins. We have a knowledge of the truth, but we have not fallen upon the rock Christ Jesus and been broken. We have not surrendered our lives fully and completely to you, and if the crisis were to hit tomorrow, our characters would reveal base metal rather than pure gold. And Lord, we want to have your character. We want to have your righteousness. We don't want to just have a knowledge of the truth. We want to have an experience in the truth where we are settled into it. Lord, forgive us for where we've fallen short. Help us to respond to what your Spirit has been saying to us this morning so that we will be prepared to meet the crisis that lies before us, not so that we will just get through it and be like, oh, but that we will get through it to see Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our best friend. Help us to learn to spend time with Jesus every day in a meaningful way, so that he really is our best and dearest friend, so that we will be filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit each and every day of our lives. And Lord, I pray that your coming really will be soon, so that we can see you in the clouds of heaven. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.